The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, so I don't know what you think of when you think of Thanksgiving, but I think of football. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It goes back to really just enjoying time with my family. And a lot of our time enjoying on Thanksgiving Day was wrapped around us playing football and watching football, right? And so th- I couldn't r- get football out of my head as I was even writing this sermon because I-, I thought this is all about the basics, right? It really is. It's about the fundamentals of Christianity, which made me think back to a story in July of 1961. Now, I know for a lot of you, that's a really long time ago. For some of you, you're like, no, I remember that year. Um, But there, there, there was a time where there were 38 players of the Green Bay Packer football team, and they had all shown up for the very first day of training camp. Now, Hang in there with me. This will make sense as to why we're talking about this. The previous season had ended for them in a heartbreaking defeat when the Packers lost a late lead in the fourth quarter to the NFL champions, the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Now, they had been thinking about this whole loss the whole offseason. It was eating away at them. It was brutal because they were supposed to win. But they ended up losing, and, and they were very happy to move on from that loss into a new season and, and hopefully win next year, right? This is what the Cleveland Browns do every year, and they think this will be the year, right? But this team was really good, and, and they go to the first day of training camp, and their coach was Vince Lombardi. You may have heard of him. And when he coached, he walked into the training camp that year in 1961, and He had a completely, let's say, different plan than the rest of the players thought would happen in leading that team that year. He took nothing for granted, right? He began the football season completely from scratch, and he began to open the the playbook and start with page one and just go page by page by page. And, And so he stood up in front of these 38 players, and he literally held a football in his right hand, and you may have heard this statement. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. Now now just imagine, he's talking to professional football players. They know what a football is. Boy, if we could all enjoy life like Gabe, we would be so much better off. Now, Vince Lombardi coached these 38 athletes, right? And, And they had to be a little bit surprised by this, right? But he was going back to blocking, to tackling, to understanding these things. So he opens the page of the first page of the book, and he begins to unpack it. And Max McGee, who was a wide receiver at that time, he, he looks at the coach and kind of jokingly says, hey, coach, could we, could we just slow down a little bit? I'm trying to take some notes, right? Now, apparently, Vince had a, had a good sense of humor because it cracked a smile on his face. But they went right back to work, right to the next page, right to the next play. That year, in 1961, the Green Bay Packers would go on to beat the best, be the best team in football as they would beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing. Uh, they would actually win the football championship that year. And 1961 was actually the beginning of an amazing run of quite an amazing team. One of the greatest coaches of all time would lead them as they would go on. He would never lose a playoff game again. And unlike the Browns, they actually went to the playoffs and they would win and they would win and they would win. He, he actually, not only that, but he won five NFL championships in a span of seven years, including three in a row. Uh, he never coached a losing team with a losing record. And, and so here's the weird fact. I love coaches. Even from a young age, I loved coaches more than I loved players, which is strange. I fell in love with Bill Cowher. I loved the way that he would lead. I loved the way that he would handle himself in a press conference. But, but here's the thing. All good coaches know that we've got to teach the fundamentals. We have to teach the basics. And the greatest coach ever, if you could call him that, he's much more than that, is King Jesus. And I say coach because disciples are made. They're made. You're born again, right? And then, just like a baby, you have to teach the baby what it means to live like Christ, right? In your family, if you have a child, you teach them what it means to hold values within the family or her, what it means to hold values in a family. We are born into the family of God when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you have to be taught. You have to be taught. You're, you're not naturally loving unless you mean loving to yourself, right? We have to be taught to love other people, especially people who don't love us back. That takes teaching, 
takes grace, but it takes teaching. And Jesus was the greatest coach. So it's not, we shouldn't be surprised to see him go back to the basics. He's been walking with his apostles and the disciples for about three years at this stage of the game, where we're at in the, the Gospel of Luke. So for three years, they've seen Jesus walk on water, you know, take a kid's lunchable, feed thousands, do all these things, heal people, and yet he's going to go back right now, three years in, and he's going to teach them the absolute fundamentals, the baseline things. And you have to think, the disciples are probably like, oh, we got this. Shouldn't we move on? Shouldn't we learn some other things? I mean, you were teaching us about how to cast out demons, but look what Jesus, three years in, is going to teach them. And, and if it's true for them, it's certainly true for us. We need to continually go back to the basics of Christianity. All right, so that's, that's the introduction to get into the text. When we get into chapter 17, notice these are very proverbial statements, right? Like wisdom statements. But, but there's four categories you could really put them in. We're gonna, first, we're going to see the danger of sin, right? The second thing we're going to see is we have to learn how to practice rebuking and forgiving, interesting, right? We, we also will see that we need to trust, let's say, put our faith in, in God working through us, right? And then we, all of this requires that we have a posture of humility. So I think those are the four categories that we'll see that Jesus wants us to really grasp. But let's look at verse one of Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Pause. I hate to say amen, but it's true, right? Like we can agree with that. If, if you have a pulse, temptations to sin are sure to come, right? I, I hope I don't have to convince any of you that. If I do, you probably don't understand sin. You don't understand the conversation of what it means to be a sinner. It's not just outward doing all these awful things, although that can absolutely be sin. Sometimes it's just not doing the things we ought to do. It's way more pervasive than we think. But then he says this, but woe to the one through whom they come. So we're going to just look at that. In, in this fallen and fractured world, there are going to be temptations all around you. And you can't escape them because you can't escape you, right? The, the greatest problem in this world to you following Christ is you. That's hard to believe, I know, because we think all these outside influences are our greatest problem. But it's actually your, your rebellious heart, your heart that wants to go its own way and not follow King Jesus, right? These are the things that lead us astray. But, but this word temptation is a, is a snare or a trap, right? We have a real enemy in Satan. He loves to set traps all day long for us to kind of just walk right into and then, oh, he has us where he wants us. It's good to be reminded, though, that when Jesus returns, sin will be eradicated. There will no longer be a day that you have to endure temptation. I, I can't wait for that day, to be honest with you, where you will love perfectly because you've been perfectly loved, and that love has transformed you to be like our God. I long for that day. But until that day comes, your daily reality is going to be one of, of fighting sin. Or, or just being mastered by it. Because you really don't have an option in the two. You either fight sin, right? Your desire to live your own life the way you want. Or you, by God's grace, will submit yourself to King Jesus and seek to follow him. And that's going to be hard. That's why it's called a good fight of faith, right? To believe that Jesus' ways are better than my way, right? That's what it means to fight the good fight of faith. Now, temptations are sure to come, and, and the easiest time to see that is the holiday season. I mean, for real. I don't know how your Thanksgiving went. Ours actually went pretty well, right? No emergency room visits, no major explosions in, in relational conflict or anything like that, but I can tell you, we've had some years where we've been to the emergency room, not because of relational conflict, but it's surprising that it didn't happen that way, right? But, but think beyond your own relationships. Think about the holiday season as far as temptation to sin. The, the advertising industry exists, literally, and the economic system we live in as Americans are built on depending on tempting you to do something. I mean, I was in retail for a long time, right? Tempting you towards greed, right? By the way, I've never gotten a car on Christmas morning. 
Would love it. Would love it. I would love to walk out. I don't have a driveway, but I got some street parking, and they got the big bow on the Lexus, and someone just pitches me some keys. Never has happened. I'll even take a good used car. I'll be happy, right? What are they saying? Man, if you want to really love someone, go to Jared and get her what she really wants, right? It's, it's just tempting you towards this greed and tempting you towards envy, right? Because you see that and you're like, I don't have that. My husband mustn't love me. My wife mustn't love me. Uh, tempting you towards even gluttony. And gluttony, by the way, is never a physical size. It's not. It's an activity. It's an activity. It's overindulging. It's overindulging in drinking. It's overindulging in food. It's over just everything's over the top. Turn down for what? That's an old saying, but the concept is really just go do you. Just go do you. Dive into a big old bowl of Cheerios, let's call it sin, and do whatever you want. That is the advertisement. Lust, lust is at the tip of every advertisement that we watch. If you just pay attention, you'll see it. So temptations, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, right? Well, because we don't have the luxury of removing ourselves from this world, right, and, and, and entering into a utopia, right? Even people who, let's say, try to strip back all their lives so that they can just live, you know, what do they even call that now? Like off the grid, right? Temptations are still there. And even that is so glamorized. I don't know. I used to collect chicken eggs. It's not that exciting, right? But if you have chickens and you want to give me free eggs, I'm happy to have them. I'm just not happy to do the work to get them. Listen, in this fractured world, you and I have to be careful not to give in to temptation. But notice what Jesus says. They're going to come, but woe to you if you're the one who brings them to a brother or sister. That, that's his main point, right? Don't tempt others to sin either directly or indirectly, right? He's very serious about this, right? Because what, why? Well, because you could literally tempt others to lead them to follow something or someone other than King Jesus. We see this all the time right now. I mean, it's everywhere. I think that's the only thing that gets news attention, uh, especially on your social media, anything. If you looked at anything about de-churching, now I said it, your phone's heard it, you're going to start to see people pop up about people who have walked away from King Jesus, shipwrecked their faith, and they've got 43 reasons why you should follow them because they don't know where they're going, which is just insanity. I mean, just think about that message. Hey, I don't know what I believe. You should follow me. But it's selling over and over. People are seeing this stuff, but they're leading people astray. They're leading brothers and sisters into sin. And Jesus has a strong word for them. He has a very strong word for them. He says, but woe to the one who, with whom these temptations come. How we live is serious business. How we live is serious business. Look, look what he says. Look, and think about the word picture he paints. Ready? Verse 2. It would be better for the person, listen, that's leading other people into sinful activity, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That is a sobering statement. Especially if you could see a millstone. I have. When I, I always wonder, like, you can look them up on the Google, right? But, but I actually saw one in person. You're not picking this thing up. I think about some of the strongest guys in this room. They're not picking this thing up. It's a huge stone that they would drag or they would go around the mill and it would crush grain. But it was a heavy, heavy, heavy stone. Jesus said, if you want to tempt other people to sin, go ahead, make yourself a millstone necklace and jump into Twin Lakes. <laughs> How does that hit the rest of you? Because that hits me like a ton of bricks. I, I think about, that is a stark comment for Jesus to make. It's clear that Jesus doesn't take sin lightly. The question that we have to ask, though, is do, do I? Do I take sin lightly? Do I like to, to play around with it like it's not a big deal? I think the mistake many Christians can make is we dance as close as we can to the fire and hope we don't get burnt. And it's just foolishness. As followers of Jesus, we, we must love. We have the joy and the delight to love our Father in heaven and to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we're going to do that, that requires that you and I examine our lives in light of Scripture. Often. 
often. This should be, this is a fundamental. We're on page one of what it means to be a follower of King Jesus. When I look at the word, right, I'm a saved man. But it doesn't mean like, well, I just kind of wait until Jesus returns or I die. I'm a saved man. I have the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. Does my life line up with Scripture? Does my life line up with loving Christ and loving others as myself? No one in here can say, yep, absolutely, got that one conquered. Which means then you and I have continually got to work, engage the work that God's doing in us. Essentially, here it's not more confusing than this, than to yield. To yield to the work of the Spirit. Someone really angers me in traffic. My nature is to tell them they're number one with my middle finger. I, I imagine awful things by hitting buttons and blowing their car up like it's like some Xbox game. Okay, I got to yield that because that doesn't honor King Jesus, even though they would never know about it. I got to yield that and say, okay, Lord, that's my desire, but your desire, the the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, what if you're by yourself in the car? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because every time you give in to these types of temptations, it's not so that you're just going to get mad. One of these days, it's small steps lead to great falls. So you give in to anger there, and it's no big deal. No one knows about it. It's just you and, oh, Jesus. But you give in to it there, and, and these small steps start to accumulate to the point where anger starts to just get a little bit of a root in your heart. And now instead of blowing up at the person who never knows about it on 30, you're blowing up at your spouse. You're blowing up at your kids. You're blowing up at your workplace. Why? Because you've not yielded your life, and you've not fought the temptation. By the way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your, you, your name, own ability. But with the temptation, he will provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Which means, brother, sister, in Christ, those who are saved, get me, you, you never have to sin again. I'm not saying you won't, you will. I'm saying that it, it never owns you. It doesn't own you. By the way, the, the life of not sinning is the best life. It's not, it's not an easy life. It's, it's, it's easy to give in to what I want. But eventually, if you will follow Christ, he'll change your want to. You'll want to love instead of get angry. You'll want to forgive instead of you know, holding on to a root of bitterness. Because you'll realize this isn't easy, but it brings joy because it magnifies the great name of Jesus Christ. And chaos still might happen in your life, but you'll not be at the center of it. Big difference, right? Now, so he says, okay, examine yourself, right? Don't lead these little ones. Who are these little ones, right? Most of the time, what do we picture? Little kids just coming up and and they're running and they're bubbly. That's not exactly what he means here. Little ones means those who are new to faith. Why this matters is because our church, for the city church, exists. We literally... Our aim is to reach lost people, those who are not convinced of the gospel, and those who are de-churched, right? Um, so they're all little ones. Like in, in, in Luke, it's Lazarus. It's, it's the prodigal son. It's the tax collector, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Don't lead them into sin. What does that look like? Living in a way you shouldn't and, and having them think, well, it must be okay to do this as a Christian because this person been walking with Jesus for a long time. You're leading them. Do you lead? Listen, ask yourself, when people look at my life, it's time, it is time to be introspective in a sense. And then we're going to end on grace, but grace empowers. It not only pardons, but it empowers. Does my life make people think I live for King Jesus or something or someone else? The reason I say this is because it's exactly what Jesus wants us to, to consider in this text. And what he says is so stark. He's talking to his disciples. He says it would be better to die, essentially, a certain death than to cause one of his little ones to be driven away from following because of your actions, because of your imitation, because of your life. He goes on, though. This is the first two verses. We've got 10 verses. Sometimes we can do 30 verses real quick. Not this one. Because closely linked to, let's say, our responsibility not to cause others to stumble is our responsibility to help them when they fall. 
right? Look at it. Look at verses 3 and 4. So he says, okay, pay attention to yourselves, right? If your brother sins, if your sister sins, he's talking about the family of God, those who are called Christian. If they sin, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and say, I repent, you must forgive him. <laughs> Woo! Never see this on a mug. Never. I never see this on a placard, right? We always like to grab the Jeremiah and the Isaiah text and we put the big old beautiful scene. There's always an eagle and a sunset or a sunrise and it's this pithy little thing and it's like, Jesus, you're the wind beneath my wings. Well, I never see a mug that says, if someone sins against you, rebuke them. And if they continue to sin, and if he says, I'm sorry, and, and repents, forgive them. But if he does it seven times, forgive him seven times. Yep, just keep on doing that. Oh, I want that mug. Because I needed reminded of that. Because that is not my posture. This is difficult stuff. This is difficult stuff, right? We must rebuke sin. No, most people, no, no one likes to do this. And by the way, if you do, you're disqualified for rebuking. I'm just going to say that right now. If you're like, man, no, my ministry is like, I'm a sin, I'm a sin sniper. I just run around and I just like, Ooh, I saw that. Boom. I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you about what you did. Can't believe you did that. You better turn to King Jesus. if, If that's you, first off, don't be surprised if you have no friends. Don't be surprised if you, you just don't get invited to anything. Because who would want to hang out with that person? Always looking for you to fall. You ever feel like you're under a microscope when you're around people? It's awful. But here's the thing. By the way, Jesus talks about this a lot. He talks about log and speck. I love how he gives this picture, right? He's like, listen, you shouldn't be talking about sawdust in your neighbor's eye when you've got a telephone sticking out yours. Like a telephone pole, right? That's pretty embarrassing. So don't do that. But, but don't miss what he's saying. We must forgive sin when it's caused to us, even when we don't want to, right? So let's tackle this first word, rebuke. By the way, it does not mean literally telling the person off. <laughs> I rebuke you, right? They say it just like that. Um, you're not gloating over the fact that someone's caught, entangled in sin, Right? You're, you're revealing the wrong that has been done, but because you want them to repent, because you want them to receive the forgiveness that's readily available. So many refuse to do this rebuking work because they, they essentially they don't want to cause any problems. Oftentimes, that's just, that's just code for I don't want to cause me problems. <laughs> I don't want to disrupt my comfort because I really like my comfortable life. And I don't want to have to tell you when you're wrong because you'll get mad at me. Can I just tell you, though, um, the, that, the Bible knows no such thing as that. Galatians 6.1 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should re- restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted, meaning tempted to be proud. Like, like, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm not doing like, right? Oh, that's, that's temptation. Paul says we will not ignore the situation, though. Notice when it says caught, caught. I think this word matters big time, caught in a sin. It's not that they had a bad day. You can have a bad day. And you shouldn't rebuke that every time. But if they're having a bad day every day at your expense, okay, at some point, you have to engage that conversation. Most people just want to avoid it. But to avoid it is to not love your brother or sister. Why? Because if you're not the target, someone else will be. And not only that, but they're caught in a transgression that's actually hurting them. So not only is it good for them, it's good for you, it's good for the community. It's good for the whole church family to engage in this work. So remember, though, what 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. I'll tell you what, if you're going to be in any relationship, you, you ought to memorize that. It's, it's not many words. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's five words. You can remember this. What that means is when, when people I love have a bad moment, I'm not waiting in the wings to tell them about how bad they were. I'm there to give grace. 
I'm there to encourage. I'm there to ask the question, how are you doing? Oh, I'm not doing great. Why? Well, and they tell you about work. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? I'm sorry you had a hard day. Right? You, you can see, like, we're caught means they're entangled. It's their daily activity. Right? Big difference, because otherwise, everybody's running around telling everybody about what they're doing, and no one wants to go to that church. I don't. I can tell you that. But we, should, we shouldn't be quick to criticize, but we should be quick to restore a brother or sister who's entangled in sin that's keeping them from enjoying God and church life. Okay? Well, we must not overlook it. Okay? Disciples of Jesus need to be neither quick to criticize, although they need to be not afraid to confront for the sake of the beloved. And so he continues, right? And, and what's the next thing we see? Um, the next thing we see is uh, gentleness. Keep watching on yourself. Let's skip that because we're going to run out of time. Um, the, this is the responsibility, by the way, of the church, right? However, it's been my experience, believers don't often want to do this. Could we agree with that? This confronting? I think that's actually a healthy place to be until it, keep, it immobilizes us. It keeps us from doing it. Um, what often happens in rebuking a fellow Christian is, I could never do that, right? I could never tell the truth because I don't want to be confrontational. But that really hurts them because the, the, wrong, the wronged person will... What do they do? Well, they just keep on going. What do you do? Here's some options. Let's take a little quiz, right? One option could be, I'm going to meet with the pastor, and I'm going to make sure they're aware of it. Is that a good option? No, it's really not, because Matthew 18 says, you should go to the one who sinned against you, not me, right? Not me. Um, or I'll, I'll take it to a Christian counselor, and I'll just complain, and I'll whine, and I'll talk about how the injustices are affecting my life. But I'm never going to tell this person because I don't want them to know, right? Or we'll have, let's say, a prayer gathering over coffee and even post it on Instagram. And what that'll be is a gossip session. That's not a good option, right? I've seen people actually leave the church because they do not want to face the problem. Can you, can you see that's gangrene to a, to a family? I've seen families destroyed. I've seen church families destroyed. I've seen like physical like families shredded because they won't do the hard work of rebuking someone. Now ask yourself, why? Well, I think the obvious answer is because we don't want to deal with the uncomfortable business of rebuking. But I also think it's because people don't want to forgive if they say they're sorry. I think it's easier just to stew and grow a root of bitterness and have that power over them. Oh, our, 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 our culture loves victim mentality, loves it, embraces it, enjoys it. But can I tell you right now, it doesn't lead to forgive. It does not lead to freedom. It's actually a temptation. It's a snare. And I've seen people just wreck, wreck their whole lives because they won't do the work of forgiving. And that's where he goes next, right? He goes next that we ought to be tenderhearted and ready to forgive. That's the posture. Don't get hung up on seven times in a day, right? Don't get, well, what's, what's real repentance look like? Just, just, he's saying have a posture of I'm ready to forgive you when you repent. My, my bent is that. Here's the problem, though. Everybody wants to be forgiven, but nobody wants to forgive, right? I mean, is your natural inclination when you're really hurt, when you're really wounded, man, I just can't wait till they say they're sorry so I can just forgive them? Or is it even before they say they're sorry, man, I just, I love them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray that God would just start working in their heart. Lord, keep my heart tender towards them. Help me be ready to forgive. You know how I know it's not? Because I just see fractured relationships everywhere. Everywhere. It's hard work to forgive. C.S. Lewis says it well. He says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. You guys, come on. Come on. Think about that. That is so true. I love, oh yeah, let's hear a sermon about forgiveness. Until you have someone who's done some grievous thing to you and now it comes to your mind, yeah, him, yeah, her, forgive them. Forgive them. Don't hold that against them any longer. Don't put it over their head. Don't bring it up every time they screw up. Don't throw it in their face. Forgive them. I don't know about you, but this is hard work. It's hard work. It's easier just to walk away. But we're called back to the basics. Don't do that. Forgiveness can be extremely difficult and painful, by the way. 
If it's, if it's a real grievous thing, it's, it's, it's almost, I would say it's impossible, but the Lord will give you help, right? So when someone hurts you badly, giving up your right to be bitter, to be angry, and to hold that against them, it seems like another violation because you have to absorb more loss. That's, that's really what forgiveness is. I, I'm going to absorb this loss. There's no making it right. I'm just going to absorb it, and I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to absorb the debt. Somebody has to. I'll be the bigger person. God help me. I forgive you. And, and he will help you do this. Right? Um, this is why we need to continually hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if I make forgiveness a law, you must forgive. You, if you don't, that's a real, right? You'll never forgive. If I understand that Jesus Christ died to save a sinner like me so that I can receive forgiveness and life with the Father, not because I did anything to deserve that forgiveness, but because it's His nature, boy, that, that good news starts to, to well up in me. It starts to change me. It starts to change the way I think. It starts to change the way I interact with people. The truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, transforms me to be a forgiving person. None of us are naturally forgiving. This is why we need a supernatural work to be done in our heart. That supernatural work happens as we meditate, think, sing, hear the word preach, the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, and he will help us to do that. The reason this matters is because i got to tell you right now, as I talk to a lot of different people within this city, I've heard so many stories, and I know some of them are inflated big time, like how, of church hurt right? Like, well, what happened? They didn't invite me to their cookout. Did you ask them why? Maybe it's something that, but, but there's some real church hurt in this city and in all cities. And so the work of doing this forgiveness, this rebuking, this correcting, not leading people into temptation, but forgiving them and asking for forgiveness is the work that literally, listen, transforms a city. It's trans Why? Because it transforms relationships. And if it transforms relationships, it'll transform families. And families are what make up a city, essentially. Right? And so if it starts here and it goes out there, it starts to take over. It starts to take root. So the work that we're talking about is fundamental, but it's of utmost importance. Because if we can't have a healthy family, and all healthy families have issues... But if we can't have a healthy family, the way we love, the way we interact, the way we forgive, the way we work through conflict, how in the world will we ever teach people who don't know King Jesus to love? Because everything we're talking about right now is tangible ways to love God and to love other people. Everything we're talking about. And if we all sought to just apply these fundamentals, I'm telling you, you would, you would stand out in a city. You would stand out if every time someone offended you, you did not take it so personal and you said, love covers a multitude of sins. I'm just going to love them. I'm going to pray for them. If they continue and continue and continue, I'm going to rebuke them and I'm going to ask for their forgiveness. And I'm going to then, I'm going to seek to love them. And when they, re when they return, when they repent, I'm, I'm going to continue to remind them, I love you. Why? Because the prodigal son, when he returned, the father ran to him before any words came out of his mouth. Is that our posture? I think we all have room to grow here. But, but make no mistake about it. What I'm talking about, what Jesus is talking about, is God's forgiveness must transform your life. It can't remain here and never go here. If you want to know if you're growing in grace, if you're growing in your walk with God, just think about how do I interact with the people closest to me? Am I becoming more patient? Am I becoming more loving? And, and, and it's not that I never do anything wrong, but when I do, do I ask for forgiveness? Do I, am I quick to turn from my ways and ask for that person to be praying for me? Am I quick to forgive them when they hurt me? Because that's how you know if you're, if you're walking with God and if it's, let's say, genuine at any level. It's how you interact with other people. Because everything else is not tangible. You can't understand that. But I can understand how I interact with people. I can see that. Do the people I come in contact with, do they flourish or do they shrink? It's not always the case. Sometimes you'll love people really well and they'll still just be toxic 
There's nothing you can do about that. You can continue to pray for them. You can continue to be in their life, and you should, unless, unless it becomes so bad that it's causing you and your loved ones many issues. But even then, you better keep a tender heart towards them, and you better be ready to reconcile. All those things, let's say, need handled over a coffee. Because there's a lot of wisdom that come into these conversations. This is not a black and white thing. I can't talk about every specific example. You may need to talk about it, which is why you need to be in a missional community group. And you need to be known and you need to know people. But even if you're not willing to go there, hit me up. I'm not pretending I know it all, but I can give you some wisdom from God's word and then trust that the the Lord's going to work in your life. But I'm telling you right now, get to work of working on fractured relationships. And, and if you're like, I'm, I just can't, I'm unwilling to do that, then, then you're going to continue to have them. You're just gonna, it doesn't go away. You just leave wreckage. So you have to figure it out. Thankfully, you're not left alone. You will, by God's grace, grow in love. It'll be 23 years in, in April that Jesse and I have been married. We have, we have grown a lot in love. And I'm going to tell you right now, the most important word that we understand in our marriage is forgiveness. It just just is. It's just keeping a tender heart towards one another, not taking everything so personally, right? Just assume the best of one another. And if you do that, you're going to be okay. Don't hold a grudge because that will grow into a root of bitterness. And when it does, it will start to just consume you. And then every little thing that happens, you'll just get ticked off. You know how many times I've met couples in my office, and, and let's call it, they've already left 10 years ago, but now they want to talk about it, but it's already done. Rig and Mortis has already set in. They're already divorced, even though it's not official. Don't let that happen. I'm talking marriage now, but I'm talking in any relationship. It's like gardening. You got to pull weeds. You got to make sure bugs aren't eating the vine, right? You got to give it water, not too much sunshine. Get a little shade if it needs to, but tend to the thing. Relationships take work. That's what Jesus is talking about. And this work is done within this community and with those who are not inside for the city, but brothers and sisters across the way and all the, all the Christians you come in contact with. And then how we interact with the lost world will stand out. So God's forgiveness, listen, must make us a forgiving people. It's just not more complicated than that. But then he continues. By the way, if you're hearing this, I, I'm, I think I'm seeing a little bit of a turkey hangover and like, oh, this is heavy. I thought we'd have a happy day today. It is going to get there. But I think there's the heaviness because you see the weight of responsibility of following Christ. And you know that I, I got, what you're telling me is, Pastor, I got work to do. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. You got work to do, right? Look what the apostles say. <laughs> I mean, this is, being Christ-like is not for wimps, by the way, right? So Jesus lays this weighty responsibility on them, and look what, what, look what they say. The apostle said to him in verse 5, increase our faith. <laughs> Exclamation point. Um, we know you to be Lord. We know all that you say is true. You want us to forgive people seven times, even if it's in a day, which, by the way, he doesn't even mean, okay, I got the seven, you're done now, right? You know, it's perfection, it's infinity. Okay, increase my faith, Jesus. I want to obey you, but, right? I love their response. Because it shows they're picking up what, what Jesus is laying down, right? Or they're at least trying to. Like, this seems impossible. Oh, you're getting close, guys. You're getting close. This, this is impossible work if it weren't for me helping you. It all seems too heavy for them to pick up, which is why they ask for greater faith. But look how Jesus responds. Okay, guys, shazam. Nope, that's not what it says. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What? (laughs) Spock, what are you saying? Like, what, do you, what are you saying? The implications of what he's saying, though, is he's saying a little faith can work miracles. That's what he's saying. Trust me. Trust me to do this work in you. Be ready to obey. Say yes. Take a small step towards this work. And guess what? I'll give you power. I'll help you. 
You should never assume that he's going to give you power until you make a move, right? I, I think we have to be really careful here. What Jesus is saying is that you don't need great faith. Get this. You just need a little faith in a great God. Why, why this matters is because if, you're, if, if we're having trouble forgiving, then, then what we need to do is, is not always sit around saying, I need more faith before I do anything. Because that can be very passive disobedience. What we can say is, God, help me to see you. Help me to be reminded of your forgiveness to me. Help me be reminded that all who believe in King Jesus have the work of the power of the Holy Spirit in us to make us like you. Therefore, I have, a, have just a little bit of faith, but that's enough to take the next step to do the thing you've called me to do, which is maybe it's confessing I, I don't want to forgive. That's a step. It's a step. Lord, create in me a clean heart. That's a step. Make me understand your forgiveness to me, a great sinner against a holy God, more real to the point where I'm so ready to forgive that, that it's just, it comes natural because of the work of your spirit in me. Lord, help me to write a kind card to a person who's wronged me and has asked for my forgiveness, and I've not wanted to forgive them. Right? I don't know what the step is, but can I tell you, you just need a little bit of faith. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what Jesus said. It's what he said. We need to believe that our Father is in control. He's not falling asleep at the wheel. Right? We need to believe that he loves us, that he's for us. We need to believe that he will take care of us, that he will help us, that he will empower us. We need to believe the fact that he is just, that he is merciful, that he's a God of steadfast love. And he always provides what he demands. You just need a little bit of faith to believe that. Do you, do you believe that? Or, or do you believe, I'm not doing anything for you till I feel like it. You'll never do anything he's asked you to do. I promise you. You, you never feel like it. Why? Because you're still trusting you. What makes all the difference in the Christian walk is our object of faith. It's understanding God's love for you. It will transform you. It will change you. It's not, it's not the quantity of your faith. You ever met somebody and you're just like, oh, that's a person, such a person of great faith. It started small. It started small. And these little steps just continue to grow as the Lord began to grow in them. But it starts so small. By faith, by the way, it, definition, faith clings to God. It trusts God, who is our Father. It casts ourselves upon the throne of grace, knowing He loves us, He cares for us, He'll empower us. He's for us. He wants us to do the things He's commanded, because it's the way that leads to real life. So why would He not help us? If He will give Jesus for your salvation, He will gladly give you power so you can obey Him. You can do this. Why? Because Christ does it for all who believe. It will be hard. Just a side note, a request for increased faith can actually be unfaithfulness. That sounds strange, I know. But I was thinking about it, right? There can be a real danger in desiring more and more faith before you do the simple thing he's commanded you to do. Because it can actually just be passive just disobedience. I'm not going to forgive them. I need more faith before I do that right? You can almost hear the posture. There is a time to ask God, increase my faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. But there can be a way that you know exactly what is right and you refuse to do it and you hide behind a veil of, I need more faith. Need more faith. No, you have enough faith. You just need to trust God with that little bit of faith and trust that he'll be there for you. It doesn't take great faith. You know what it takes? It takes genuine faith. And the question you have to wrestle with then is, do I, do I have genuine faith in those moments? If so, I'm going to take a small step. What does that mean? I'm going to pray for this person once a day. I'm going to set a timer on my phone. I don't know what it means for you. I don't know, but I know this. I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean I refuse. But you just get a cold, hard heart. You'll grieve the spirit. You'll grow a root of bitterness. You give opportunity to the devil. And then what we hear in Paul telling us in Ephesians is, no, be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgive as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. 
So the gospel is the power to forgive. So here's your point. And then we've got one little parable. We've got 30 seconds. Let's go. Here's your point. The fundamentals of discipleship include overcoming snares of sin, rebuking and forgiving those who sin, all the while humbly trusting Jesus to provide all the grace that is needed to obey. Okay, this last little parable, I think, is a blast. So pay attention because we're going to finish up very quickly. Ready? 7 through 10, chapter 17. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come, eat, come at once and recline at table? Answer, No. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Yes. Does, does he thank the servant because he did what it was commanded? <laughs> no, that's the implied answer. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I mean, if you pay attention, this is real comedy. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously. He's saying, oh, oh, you want a high five? Because you forgave. Because you rebuked. Because you trusted. No, that's just, that's just your everyday life. No, we live in a, in a world where everybody gets a trophy. Everyone gets a blue ribbon for just doing ordinary things. We give tips for someone giving me a donut now, or they at least ask for it. I don't always give it. Sometimes I feel generous and stupid, and I give it. I got to tell you, you shouldn't get a tip for giving a slice of pizza. I'm sorry. I, I, if you call me a boomer if you want. The employer needs to pay them more, or they need to get another job. Okay? It's, it's not a real service industry. Like, my daughter's working two retail jobs. No one's giving her any tips because she's bringing them out. Why? Because it's her duty. It's her job. That's what Jesus is saying. I find this hilarious. If you don't, ask for some help. Because <laughs> it's really funny, right? He, he's, he's saying unworthy servants. Oh my goodness. What's he saying? Well, one writer summarizes it really well, and I think it's great. He says, this is a cure for those Stupid times in your Christian life when you tend to get hot stuff syndrome. Meaning, if you've ever obeyed, it's because the Spirit was at work in you. And you're just responding to the grace that He's given you. You don't need a high five. You got something better. God is your Father. Right? Remember how he said way back time ago, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice that Jesus willingly, joyfully died to save you, but not just so that we could remain unchanged. He died so that you could have access to the Father, so that we could be a part of, by God's grace, showing the world God's love, showing them what our, our Father in heaven's like. He's quick to forgive. Oh, he's, he's quick to correct. But, but listen, he doesn't do it from a place of punishment because there's no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves. He loves. He's worthy to be praised, and he empowers us. And when we do this, and when we sloppily, by the way, no one's doing this perfectly. Jesus did this perfectly. But that should never be an excuse to sit on the sidelines and say, well, I'm just not doing anything. It's just never the posture of a Christian. No, a Father, help me to be more like you. And to be more like you is to be quick, to not lead people into temptation, is to keep watching myself so that I can actually lead my brothers, my sisters, my neighbors who don't know and don't love you into the way of real life, life that's everlasting. And, and Lord, if I ever see anyone I love deeply, or even if I don't love them deeply, just wandering off the path and leading other people astray, God, give me the courage and give me the humility to correct them so that I might see them come back to you and receive this grace, this forgiveness, this life, this joy. And I'll tell you, if you do that, you'll have real friends if you've ever done that, and it works out to the way that you would hope it would. If it doesn't, you just have to leave that in the hands of God and trust that He is pleased with your obedience, even though the result didn't go the way you wanted it to. And when you do all this, just say, this is another day at the office. Get up tomorrow and do it again. 
That's what he's saying. These fundamentals seem really, really challenging. But can I tell you what it takes is a posture of humility, which is what those last verses are talking about. Just like John the Baptist said, I must decrease. Jesus, you must increase. And when that happens, that humble attitude magnifies Christ, not man. And that's why we're here. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are a kind, gracious God. You love to serve your servants. And we should not detach our brain from the rest of the Bible. Because you tell us this story, but not too many parables ago, we heard that you said, sit down to your servants and let me serve you. And, and in all of this, Lord, you do serve us. You give us the grace and the mercy that, it re, that is really needed to be able to obey anything you've commanded. Lord, help us to obey. Lord, help us that, to be faithful servants. But better than servants, you've adopted us. We're your children. Lord, help us to trust our Father to give us all things that we need in order to live the life of obedience that you have called us to. Not so that we might be saved, but because we are saved. Father, you have saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith is effectual. And those who are saved will produce in our lives the fruit that lines up with the truth that is reality. That we were once sinners who have been brought near, adopted through the blood of Christ, and now have the power of the resurrection to obey you. God, give us hearts that long to be more like you. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.